You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is Celebs with Horses, highlighting celebrities from film, TV, the arts, and music, and their love of horses. Hosted by award-winning author, Lisa Wysocki. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Celebs with Horses, and many thanks to today's title sponsor, Hands-On Gloves. I'm your host, Lisa Wysocki. People Magazine described her gritty vocals as the country music equivalent of blues great Bonnie Raitt, and fans of country music will recognize her many hits, such as Taking It Easy, Crazy Blue Eyes, and my favorite, 16th Avenue. Of course, we're talking today with Lacey J. Dalton, who for decades has been an advocate for America's wild horses. Prior to her interest in the wild horse, Lacey spent decades wowing audiences with her mix of country, Americana, and Western music. Early in her career, she was honored as the Academy of Country Music's new female vocalist of the year. She's also a three-time Grammy-nominated artist and the only woman featured on Willie Nelson's Half Nelson album. I have to think it must be pretty amazing when Willie Nelson chooses you to sing a duet with. Lacey's been inducted into the North America Country Music Association's International Hall of Fame and recently received the Pete Huttlinger Music Excellence Award from Strictly Country Magazine and the Spirit Awards. And last year, she received a Lifetime Career Achievement Award from the Josie Music Awards. Her songs and voice can also be heard in films, including the Alison Eastwood film, Don't Tell. But music aside, in 1999, after a tragedy that involved one of her favorite wild horses, Lacey co-founded the Let em Run Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to rescuing, rehabilitating, and rehoming America's wild horses and burros who have no voice. It's an interesting journey that brought Lacey to the wild horse, and sometimes it's best to start at the beginning. So that's what I did when I asked her about her first memory of a horse. Probably the very first memory would be one of those ponies that somebody brought around to have your picture taken on. Oh, but yeah. actually, But actually, a, more, a better story, uh, my grandfather uh, worked for the railroad, and he had huge workhorses that he used to log. Um, and he would drag these logs out of the woods and uh, use them to make the railroad ties. He had, in his retirement, he always kept one or two of these wonderful, beautiful big horses around. And I was just fascinated with these horses. And I have a horrible story about as a child, I knew where the grain bin was. So yeah. we must have fed we must have fed one of those, thank God, very big horses. And buckets of grain. Oh, no. <laughs> we were about seven or eight years old. And my grandfather was furious. He was just furious. He had a, he had a, the, the horse lived. It was fine. But um, thank God, because he just loved him. But he uh, had a knot in the manger of the horse's stall. And he always told us that if we could untie that knot, we could ride the horse. Well, of course, the knot was like the Gordian knot. There was no way you could <laughs> untie the thing when you were seven you couldn't even get your hand around it but um i had a lot of fun with my grandfather he loved these horses but he told me something that i'll never forget he said you must never trust a horse to kiss you on the face never trust a horse he said i had a horse that i loved and he loved me 
And every day I would go in and he would kiss me on the cheek. And he said, one day he bit my cheek off. Oh, no. And my, and my grandfather had this huge scar from where the horse had probably, you know, they do that to, to play with each other and to, you know, nipping yeah. each other. Away. But these horses were huge. Their heads were, <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether they were, I don't know what uh, their breeding was. But they were, you know, it's been too long ago, but they were, when you were a little kid, they just towered above you. And I imagine if one of them took a bite out of your cheek, um, it was probably going to be that scar for the rest of your life. Oh, but that I'm was sure. a lesson. That was a lesson he taught us, you know, don't trust them that way. Right. Because they have a different way of showing their love than you do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now, you went on, obviously, to have a huge uh, career in music that's obviously still going very strong. And um, But at some point, uh, you got involved with um, some wild horse advocacy. How did that come about? Well, I've always loved horses. I've always thought horses were a very special animal. Um, and I've always thought they were one of the most beautiful animals all i love all animals but horses are special to me and um it was probably in 1998 before i really got involved we were down in las vegas and i can't remember who all was there but there were a lot of us stars that were there um at the time and the radio stations down there decided to help the bureau of land management um promote a big horse sale in las vegas and to my knowledge it was one of the most successful horse sales that ever happened. And we all, you know, got on board and did uh, PSAs, public service announcements for it. And so it was very, very successful. And that was sort of the beginning of the Bureau of Land Management beginning to attempt to uh, uh, get horses uh, adopted out. You know, that program has had some pretty wretched um, twists and turns over the years, but at least they're trying. You know? Yes, yes. And and so from there, something compelled you to um, get further involved and actually found a nonprofit to help the wild horses. What what was that instigation? Well, that is a sad story because um, I decided to move. I was in Nashville and I was very, very homesick for the West. I was born in northeastern Pennsylvania. But I ran off with a rock and roll guitar player when I was turning 21. We went out to, <laughs> and lived in a commune, a hippie commune. And we had a psychedelic rock and roll band uh, called, uh, called Office, that we had, for lack of a better name, really, in fact. But um, we were, uh, I lived in the Santa Cruz Mountains and near Santa Cruz, California, which is right over the hill from, um, you know, where all the... Uh, dot-com stuff is in the silicon mm -hmm. valley and it's very beautiful there and and it was very um it used to be a vacation place for a lot of the um the folks from san francisco and there were all these beautiful old cabins we built in the 40s of heart redwood and we got to live in those cabins and and there was an incredible music scene i always tell people there there were more musicians there than people and, <laughs> and that was really true but when I got my record deal, the first time, I didn't have to go back to Nashville. They didn't, you know, they said, you can stay where you were. And I was so happy. But uh, with my second record deal with Jimmy Bowen, he wanted me back in Nashville. And so I had to move back to Nashville. Now, having lived in the East before, I had already for many years realized that my spirit 
only felt right in the West. That was where my that was where my soul needed to be. Um, there's something about the wide open spaces and the way people think, the kind of live and let live thing that's out here, uh, really, really resonated with me. And so I was very, very, very homesick in Nashville. And finally, one day I said to my ex-husband, I said, I am, I have to, I have to go back. I, I can't be here anymore. It's beautiful. I have the most beautiful farm I could ever imagine. I have everything I've ever wanted, but this is not where I'm supposed to be. I just know it. And so um, I began looking and I looked for, it took me about three years of looking, um, but I had been playing all the the big clubs in Reno, Nevada, you know, Harris and the Nugget and the Pepper Mill and all those things for years. And I realized it was the biggest little city in the world. It had everything that you ever wanted in the city, but it was small. And I thought, you know, this is a pretty nice town. It doesn't have a, it doesn't have a pretty uh, clean face. At that time, it was a pretty, pretty funky up here. Um, it's become very much nicer now. But I started looking the outlying areas and I found a place up in the there Reno sits in a deep valley right uh, all the Truckee meadows between the uh, Sierras on the west and a smaller uh, mountain range called the Virginia range um, on the east and up in that Virginia range was the old town of Virginia City which has is just exactly like it was 200 years ago I mean it just they just haven't gentrified it it's a it's a western town that is still looks like a western town it doesn't look like a uh, movie set. And there's something about that that I really liked. And so I decided um, that I might want to live up near Virginia City, up in the mountains here. And um, it took a long time to find the right house. Uh, and the, one of the things that made me come here was I was sitting with my friend under a little place up in Virginia City, and we were having tea one night just about sunset. I'll just never forget. I said, what am I hearing? What is that sound I'm hearing? And she put her finger up in, up, up in the air and she said, listen, there's a horse coming. And I went out on the porch of her little Victorian house. And here was a little herd of wild horses, a little band of about four, three or four horses walking up E Street in Virginia City. Virginia City is just a village. It's really small. But I thought, you know, if these horses can be here and be wild and free and walk up the street, Maybe I can, too. Lacey did, in fact, settle in Virginia City and was proud to live in the state with the highest wild horse population in the country. Virginia City proved to be a charming town, and Lacey loved watching the many wild horses. She even became very fond of several of them. But when a tragic accident involved one of her favorite horses, the course of Lacey's life changed forever. At that time, the house that I found it was not uncommon for 30 or 40 horses to walk through my uh, the front of my land every day. And um, they'd show off their babies. And there was one very, very lovely bay stallion, very beautiful confirmation. He had one white foot. And he, had, he threw all these little babies that looked just like him. And one day, I took the road that comes into the Highland Ranches where I live out to the two-lane road that goes down to Reno. And a lot of horses, there's a big straight stretch there. It's the only straight stretch. It's a switchback road that was built for the railroad that goes to Virginia City. But there's a straight stretch down below my house. And it's about a half a mile long, maybe four, a quarter of a mile long. And people really put on the gas there. 
And I'd seen so many horses killed on that corner. Mm. And one morning I went down and that beautiful old stallion was there on the side of the road and he had thrashed and had a horrible death. Oh, how sad. Well, that was the moment. I called my friend and I said, that's it. I cannot sit by and these horses need their own place. And I need to do something and I cannot sit by for one moment longer. This is the last time I want to see this. Lacey was obviously heartbroken at the death of the little stallion, but she was also really mad. She's never been one to sit back, and now she decided it was the time to use her platform as a country music star to speak up and advocate for the wild horses of Nevada. Lacey spoke up loud and strong, and it wasn't long before several major companies began to listen. In the subsequent years, um, I worked very hard with the largest industrial park in the world. It was a man who was the broker for that park. And uh, his girlfriend was a famous Susan Austin the, well, mm-hmm. the, the, of the, uh, the actress. Well, actually, she actually she was uh, she was the madam of the whorehouse. Oh, my. There. <laughs> the wild, it, you know, it's very famous, the Mustang Ranch and Wild Horse. Uh, in fact, they named when they built the new brothel, they named it for the Wild Horses. Wow. So they were very uh, big help in talking the owner of that park into allowing uh, the wild horse herd up here, which has been up here forever, about 2,500 horses usually, um, at least in past years, uh, roamed these lands. And with the where I live, the Highlands Ranches, there's about, oh, and and the industrial park and some other places where the horses are permitted to be, there's about 250,000 acres where the horses can roam. And we finally got permission. We talked the industrial park, the owner of the industrial park, into allowing those horses to be there because they didn't want them there. But I had read something in the Atlantic. I think I was in the Atlantic that said, you know, there are three reasons for moving uh, international companies, moving their headquarters. One of them is there. I can't remember what the third one was, but one of them was proximity to wildlife. The second was proximity to a brothel. And the third one was, I don't know what, probably proximity (laughs) to a big highway. But anyway, I took this article in and I was, you know, pitching that. And it so happened that the first big company that came uh, into um, uh, the Tahoe Reno Industrial Park was uh, Walmart. And the first thing they did after they moved in, they put up these huge water towers and painted wild horses all over them and gave us a donation to do some wild horse work. And that's when I think the owner of the park really realized that these horses could be a tremendous uh, calling card for that uh, industrial park, which is the largest one in the world. Then we had people come in like uh, blockchains and Tesla. And um, they they had interest in the horses, and now they are actually doing things to uh, protect the horses. They're putting in uh, water for them and, and fencing off highways and so on. So the horses are sort of um, just on that range, which is fine. They can be on that range all the time. There's a, there are mountains on that range, and there are also flatlands where they can graze in the winter. Well, Walmart and Tesla are some pretty big companies, and before this interview, I had no idea they were involved with wild horses. There was a lot else I didn't know either, and when I began to research this episode, I found a lot of very passionate but very conflicting information on the internet about the wild horse. So I asked Lacey, in her opinion, what was the biggest misconception about these horses? There is a persistent rumor that horses are not native to this country. Actually, 
I, my wild horse museum, which I had for many years in Virginia City, we had the bones of the modern day horse found in the Pleistocene mud. Mm. Now, they probably did die out due to being eaten by the natives or the great mammal die off, but they have been here in recorded history. Wildlife people would like to tell you that they are not native. I like to say to them, do you know what's not native to here? Cows and white people. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. <laughs> well, it is true. And the horses have been here. And in, in fact, uh, they're finding a lot of uh, bones of the horses that were that came from Norway up and around the, the Great Lakes. And the Lakota people had a completely different name. They they say they have always had the horse, and their word for the horse is is a completely different word than um, it is for the mustangs that were uh, came from the Spanish that had you know gotten away from the uh, Spanish explorers mm-hmm. and and uh, interbred, but they had a different word for their horse, and their horse looked very, very different. They were little scrubby things. I love our hands-on gloves, especially because with them, you can actually feel the horse as you groom. Really, they're absolutely amazing. Whether it's itchy bug bites, sticky sweat marks, caked on mud, or exuberant springtime shedding, hands-on gloves gives you the tactical tools you need to get the job done right. Hands-on gloves comes in pairs, so you'll get twice the work done in half the time. And since they are available in three different sizes, you get the gloves that work best for you. Plus, they come in a number of very cool colors. Hands-on gloves are available at major retailers nationwide or at handsongloves.com. And now, back to the show. As an author, I was fascinated to learn about the different words our Native Americans had for the horse. And after the interview, I got lost in the internet for a while reading about that. If you're interested, a simple Google search will turn up a plethora of information. And aside from the Native American words, the story Lacey told me next really spoke to my heart. I had, I've, I've had some things that you wouldn't, it would be very hard if I told you for you to believe them. But the one thing we've noticed with the wild horse is that if we use those in programs where we are trying to help people that have post-traumatic stress syndrome, mm-hmm. that the wild horses seem to bond a little differently than domestics. Interesting. Little, it is interesting, and I think it's because of their fight and flight thing. But they are, um, I've had some things with these horses that have, that have almost been metaphysical. I'd love to hear and, about it. Well, I'd say it's a little bit of a hard story to tell. <laughs> I, I can tell you, but I, you know, it, it's hard to believe, and it's a little hard to tell because I, I got this mare wild as a hare off the range, and um, she was miserable in, in my corral because she had something under her tail that was really bothering her. And she would go up to the fence and try to rub her tail on the fence, and I knew that she had some sort of fungus or something that was really bothering her. Mm-hmm. And so, and I've found this with other horses and sometimes with people. Sometimes if you have a clear enough vision in your head of something that you want to do with an animal or with a person, um, and your vision is very clear, that not all of them seem to be able to do it as well. I think we all do it to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. We probably all do it all the time to a lesser extent than what I'm going to try to illustrate here. But this horse was miserable. and um. She had never been touched, and I couldn't get near her. She didn't. If I went in the in the uh, corral, she would just, you know, you'd raise your hand, and she'd fly to the other side of the corral. She'd been 
frightened and she was frightened of me. But I took a bucket of warm water out there and it had some, I had some furacin, which is a, I'm sure you know what that is. It's oh, the yes. worst medicine on earth. If that, that doesn't fix it, you got to call the vet. But um, I had a pail of soapy warm water and I put a picture in this mare's head. I said, back up to the fence and lift your tail up. And I just had this very clear picture. And that horse backed up the fence and put her tail up and allowed me to clean under her tail and then put furacin under her tail. She only let me do it that day and the next day. But that actually happened. I think there is a sort of a, I think they're a little, they're very sensitive animals, but I think they're also, some of them are pretty psychic. Wow, I can only imagine how frightened that mare was. But I think many of us have had an experience like Lacey had, where it seemed as if we were communicating without words with our horse. And psychic or not, we all, like Lacey, strive to learn all we can from our horses. They have so much to teach us. I think they teach us how to listen to them. And I think that the most important thing for us is to try to learn to listen to each other. And I think we don't listen as much as we want to be heard. And I know that's true. I'm, you know, I'm always trying. I like to talk. So it's, uh, it's very important for me to also be quiet and really listen to what people and animals have to say, because there is a certain oneness in all things that are, that, that are. And if you can get to that point of quiet and stillness where you're listening and paying attention, it's easier to feel that link between other people and, and animals and yourself. I think horses and animals teach us that. In addition to being great teachers, we all know that horses can provide us with some pretty amazing experiences. And Lacey J. Dalton has had more than her share of those. I've had some of the most incredible experiences outdoors on the back of a horse um, that I've ever had in my life. Um, I'll never forget we were in Bismarck, um, in one of the Dakotas. I can't, is it North Dakota, Bismarck? Yes, it is. Capital, even geez. Anyway, um, a long time since high school, okay? <laughs> but, um, I, I got to meet uh, some cowboys out there, and one of them was a banker, and he had a beautiful horse for me to ride. And we got to go up behind Mount Rushmore, where they feed feed the uh, eagles. Mm. They, if if the if someone hits a, a, a an animal on the road, they pick up that roadkill and they take it up behind Mount Rushmore, and they get to feed the eagles with these carcasses. And that was the most incredible experience. First of all, seeing Mount Rushmore, then riding up behind it on just a perfectly magnificent horse. The horse was so well-trained and had such beautiful gaits. I felt like I floated all the way there. Some <laughs> of those things, well, you know, when you're, when you're hiking and you're doing all the work yourself, you sometimes get involved in your hips hurting or you're, you're breathing <laughs> hard or, you know, and you're, you're, you're climbing up, grabbing under roots, climbing up a thing. That's great, too. But from the back of a horse, it's so much quieter. You know, my yard glider is my favorite tool. It makes hauling just about anything around the farm easier. Hay, feed, brush, 
anything. If you haven't seen one of these, Yard Glider is a modern-day stone boat. It loads without lifting, it hauls more, and it dumps faster than a cart. I got my Yard Glider a few months ago, and since then it has helped me move more stuff than I could ever have imagined. I can pull it with the truck or a small riding lawnmower, and I use it every single day. Seriously, every farm and every property should have one. Yard Gliders are made in America, and you can get yours at yardglider.com. Use code HRN and save 10% when you order right now. Now, back to the show. You know, so many of the celebrities I've talked to have mentioned the peace that they find out on the trail, just with them and a horse. And for them, just as it is for the rest of us, trail riding is a nice break from our really busy lives, especially when you can do it with your all-time favorite horse. I had a little Arab, a little Egyptian Arab horse, uh, whose name was something fancy, but I called him Punk. <laughs> he went through four trainers. Oh my! Who could not, uh, could not get him gentled. They just couldn't get him gentled. He was a very high, hot little horse. You just couldn't wear him out. And uh, finally, my friend, she said, "I'd like to use this horse for uh, endurance." I said, "Well, he sure has it. You won't wear him out." And she said, "But first, she said, I have to be able to ride him." I said, "Well, uh, I said that you know that's going to be a minute because we've had four different people work with him, and he just doesn't have it. And he, he and I got along. We just got along. But the trainers, um, not so much. But she, uh, there was a very famous endurance rider up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and they owned a, a big logging company." And I wish I could think of her name. She actually wrote books um, uh, about gentling Arab horses, particularly Egyptian Arabs that were so good for um, endurance. And so my friend took him up to her place and asked her if she would please help us get him trained and gentled. And um, she said, certainly. She said, go out. So they went out in the corral and they just, you know, used blankets and bags and you know flapped stuff around him and threw sheets on him and did stuff like that for about two or three hours and then uh, this woman who was in her 80s said now put the saddle on the blanket you know the pad and so my friend put the saddle on she said now put his bridle on we're going for a ride oh my goodness and she said you don't want to bore these horses get bored really easily and so she took my friend out, and they went up and down the mountains, out by, um, they were all the way up on Highway 1, um, somewhere just south of San Francisco, where it gets to be woods again. And um, they went up into those steep mountains and rode for about six hours. And when they came back, he knew what it was to carry a rider, and he was able to be ridden ever since, you know, from then on, he was always a, a very high-spirited horse. You know, you couldn't you couldn't put somebody on him and expect that they would stay on if they hadn't ridden a horse before. Right, right. So did but he ever do endurance? He did with her, yeah. He did she did some riding with him, but she um she had to move and uh, she took him up to Oregon with her for a while. And I used to go up there and ride on the logging roads. Uh, up in Oregon, and there are mountains up there are very steep too. And literally, he should have been someone's endurance horse uh, because he, he just 
at the end of a 10 hour ride, I would have sold him to you for a penny <laughs> because he was still doing that little. Tink, 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 tink. I had a, you know, I had this uh, first when I first got him, the people that had him before had been endurance people that they, they were had champion endurance horses in, in California. And they had trained him with some kind of thing, some thing they had on his head with a metal bar that went kind of up above his nose and this wretched bit. And I finally figured out that myself, I thought, you know, this horse doesn't care about this contraption on his head. He hates it. So I got a side pole, which was a halter mm -hmm. with a couple of reins on it. Right. Yeah, I ride he, in side poles all the time. And he was the same horse with that as he was. Not to say he was a million times better. He wasn't. But he wasn't fighting that miserable headpiece anymore. He absolutely hated it. And it probably hurt him. Sure. You know, but he and he was fine with the side pull. You know, he was just as uh, easy to stop with the side pull as he was. <laughs> thing. I had I learned so much about uh, about green horses from him. About you know going over what hated water. You know, Arab horses don't like to get their feet wet. Please, you know. Like, <laughs> oh God, that's the worst. Well, he was a he was quite a teacher. He was quite a teacher, and I've always appreciated that about him. And I and we we got along with each other. We learned. I learned that when he didn't want to go across a creek, that he would either leap across it in one fell swoop, or we would go round and round and round by the side. Of, I would just hold the rein down close to you know way down below my knee, and then make him go in circles until he got sick of it, and then he mm -hmm. would go through the water. There were little tricks that I learned um, with him. That he, I don't think he was ever anymore. I don't think he ever became a trained horse because I'm not really a trained rider. But we got along, and I spent hours and hours and hours with him and my dogs up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And we kept the trails open. They tell me the trails from Palo Alto, that the trails from Santa Cruz to Palo Alto, which is 70 miles, uh, are were open. And so I went up and kept those trails open, at least, you know, probably. 20, 30 miles of them for years. Just go up there with, and he would let me, you know, bring my clippers along and, and keep the trails open. Wow. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're open anymore, but they were beautiful. The trails up there through the Madrone. And, oh, California, Northern California is so beautiful. Yeah. People, people don't know that. You know, they think of California as a one long orange Julius stand. <laughs> which it kind of is in place it kind of is like that in places but northern california i think is one of the most beautiful places on earth that it is many years ago i regularly hauled horses through northern california and well if you haven't been put some hiking there on your bucket list it's certainly worth the trip Lacey has spent a lot of time around horses, both in the saddle and on the ground, and I was interested to know if the horses had influenced her songwriting and her music in any way in that we did a, I did a project for the horses called Wild Horse Crossing with a bunch of my friends up here. Everybody donated everything, their performances, the publishing, everything to make a, a little CD for the wild horses. And there were five or six artists on that along with myself. And I wrote and co-wrote a lot of the songs because I wanted to have this thing, this gift that could keep giving, I don't know how many thousands of of dollars we've made by selling that CD, but all of the artists, and some of them are really great poets. Um, there's one one of the, in particular, 
a man named Richard Alloyan, who writes the best story songs in the whole world, has a song on there called The Escape that I now do in my show, which is about a Mustang who, you know, is being chased by a helicopter, but he knows the trail and the helicopter doesn't, and he gets away. So, it, you know, it's one of those things where the outlaw gets away, and I always like those stories. I like a happy ending, but 100% of that goes to let him run, and we don't keep money and let him run. Our thing is we don't keep money here. Our money comes in, and we give it to the people that need it as soon as we can. I don't carry. I usually try to keep about $3,000 in it just in case we have an emergency where somebody needs to do something quick. But what we do is uh, we try to move that money right on through um, to help these uh, people who are really boots on the ground, not the great big organizations. They have their own ways of funding themselves. But we like to help the mom and pop groups that really do an enormous amount of the rescue and rehoming and and, uh, rehabilitation of wild horses. Um, We find that we just did a study recently and we found that our friend who runs um, Chili Pepper, which is C-H-I-L-L-Y-P-E-P-P-E-R dot org, uh, probably rehomes and rehabilitates and uh, and uh, uh, it moves more horses through than a lot of the very big organizations do. They're, the big organizations are more concerned with legislating and, you know, getting things, um, trying to get uh, things passed to keep the horses safer all the mm-hmm. time. And, you know... Uh, that to some extent, that is um, that is where probably a great deal of their money goes, but and that leaves the the mom and pop people who really are doing a lot of the boots on the ground stuff, not very well funded sometimes. So right. those are the groups. Those are the groups we like to fund at Let Them Run, and that's what we do. Lacey's Let Them Run Foundation is making a difference. But what about the future? What happens next? And how will our wild horses be protected in years to come? Lacey has an idea of what the possibilities could be, and I was really excited to hear her vision. We're growing all the time in, in, in our ideas about ways to manage them, but we have a friend named Frank Smith who owns the Music Ranch out in Montana, uh, which is just a little way from Livingston, Montana, about 45 miles from um, Yellowstone Park. He had a wonderful notion that somewhere near Yellowstone Park. It would be wonderful. And we just wrote to um, the legislators in Wyoming suggesting that they work with the BLM to get some BLM lands uh, given to them to have a wild horse sanctuary uh, where we use uh, compassionate birth control. I'm sorry, but I have to be a proponent of that. The reason is if we don't do something, we won't have any left. And that compassionate birth control can be reversed. If you only do it for a few years, uh, up to six years, then you can allow the the mare to have a baby or two babies or however many babies you want. But you can control the size of the herd so they don't, you know, just, you know, horses are like rabbits. They're just going to have a baby every year. And what we've suggested to the legislature out there is to work with the BLM. They had just had something go through their legislature saying that they wanted to slaughter horses and use the meat, uh, sell the meat. Well, that's never going to happen. Congress is never going to permit that to happen. The American people have made their will very clear about the wild horses. And that would it is the most uh, explosive issue when you start to 
get into trying to slaughter horses um, and and send them away for meat. People feel very passionately about it, but we have to do something. And I think that birth control, the compassionate birth control that we have now, um, is is but nothing's ideal. I had to use birth control. If I hadn't used birth control, I'd have 27 children by now. Well, they have to use it too. That's how I feel about it. You know, it wasn't my favorite thing, but, you know, uh, it's the best we can do for right now. And I think it's a way to control the size of the herd. And if we had way open, and we had some people who really know how to manage horses out there uh, to make sure that they, you know, uh, are safe. And that people can interact with them in a non-invasive way um, with, uh, for instance, Jeep um, tours and uh, horseback rides, photo safaris and walking tours. They could also, um, it would be a wonderful thing to do when you're visiting Yellowstone Park. Let's take the kids and grandma and, and we'll put grandma and grandpa in a Jeep. The kids can ride horses and we'll ride horses and we'll go out and we'll see these horses and interact with them and see how they are in the wild. And it's a stirring sight. It's just everybody who comes up here to Virginia City, when they see a little herd of wild horses, the buses screech to the side of the road, these tourist <laughs> buses, and the people pour out of them and take pictures of the wild horses. They're fascinating to all of us. Most people really like the wild horses. And it's one of the few things, 80% of the people who, who've been, uh, asked about it believe that they want these horses to be protected and preserved well what better way to do that than preserve them near something like yellowstone park that gets a million visitors it's a million or did we say five i the last time i looked it was um a lot it's a lot a lot <laughs> they get a lot of visitors and if they drove past if they drove past the gate to this on the way you know come back and see they know wild horses in their natural na uh, natural habitat, and the beauty of the of the West. Come see this. Come experience this. People would come from all over the world. Well, that's it for this episode. You know by now that we couldn't do this show without the help of a number of people and businesses. So special thanks go to our guest, Lacey J. Dalton. Thanks also go to Kurt Webster, Scott Sexton, Jeremy Westby, twenty eleven PR. Mike Mead, Hands-On Gloves, Yard Glider, Jen Hebert, Glenn Hebert, and of course, the Horse Radio Network, now part of the Equine Network family. Many thanks, too, to Kelly, Jennifer, Mike, Kim, Mary, Allison, and Pat, all who contributed wonderful questions for this episode. And if I missed you, it wasn't intentional, and know that you're thanked as well. Speaking of questions, if you'd like to ask a question of an upcoming celebrity, just go on over to horseradionetwork.com to see who might be coming on next and to send in your questions. As for me, look for me at lisawysaki.com. That's L-I-S-A-W-Y-S-O-C-K-Y dot com. Tune in next time to meet yet another celebrity who loves horses. Horses.